1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Sam Cantor and today I'm interviewing Dr. Michael O'Hanlon. He is the Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, a member of the Defense Policy Board at the Department of Defense, and an adjunct professor at numerous universities. His latest book is entitled Military History for the Modern Strategist, in which he explores America's major wars since 1861 to identify the trends, lessons, and themes that might in turn help us intellectually grapple with contemporary and future strategic issues. I'm really excited to talk to him. It was a great read. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today, and we're glad to have you.
0: Hey, Sam, thank you. It's nice to hear that you found it a good read. It's certainly fascinating material, and I can't take any credit for that. But tried to get at it in a way that was you know, relatively fast-moving and, and yet still hopefully fairly comprehensive. So I look forward to your reactions.
1: So I'll go out on a limb and say that you're probably at the point in your career where you, you have some freedom to write or publish on a topic of your choosing. So uh, why strategy writ large and then why this kind of survey of major American wars is your vehicle to convey these lessons?
0: Well, the main thing that prompted me at first over really many years of reflecting on this subject and on my own knowledge or to be honest, lack thereof about military history at certain points in my life was that I, you know, I'm I'm the product of policy schools. I I went to the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton, which was known as the Woodrow Wilson School back in the day. I've been teaching at Georgetown and Columbia and elsewhere for a long time. And yet what I've observed is that a lot of people like me don't wind up with a good understanding of military history. It tends to be interpreted in many sort of political science circles in the United States these days as essentially, you know, preamble or prelude material to the, to the real academic studies that are meant to be more analytical, more quantitative in many cases, running regressions on what causes war and what stops war and things like that. I have nothing against those kinds of analyses, and some of them I found very useful over the years, but the, the overall culture sort of gives short shrift to the actual history in its making and its core content and it just, you know, the history itself for its own sake, And I always felt that was incorrect. I felt undereducated in this space as a security specialist who found myself often you know, trotting around the Washington, D.C. area, coming across various Civil War battlefields and often not really knowing how they fit into the larger picture of how the war flowed and and winding up in conversations with people who did study military history, including some military officers who found it inspirational or otherwise instructive. And I found they knew the history better than I did, even though I was the academic with the PhD and they were out fighting wars in real time. So it was a little bit the, the need to try to make amends about all of that for my own education in the first instance, but also as a hopefully a gentle nudge to the broader policy and education community that I think we need to value history more for its own sake. That was certainly the longstanding motivation I had for many years. Then when I actually did the book, I realized there were several lessons that sort of validated why history was worth studying. And I wrote those up as three main observations in my final chapter of the book. We can get into that in a minute, but I think those are applicable to modern strategy. So it's not just that you should know this stuff like you should know your ABCs and your, you know, your Sunday school prayers and just things we all are told we should know. Um, It's it's because actually studying history can change your perspective on how to think about strategy and war today. And uh, I found that extremely helpful for my own career, even though I didn't get around to completing it until the uh, tender age of 61.
1: <laughs> and I'll ask uh, you know, a large portion of our listeners or students or academics who might be working on their own project. You've taken a massive amount of material and kind of boiled it down to something a little more uh, parsimonious. Uh, it was once written of... Uh, the naval historian samuel elliott morrison that he had quote the courage to simplify so can you talk a little bit about that challenge of simplification about boiling down these massive amounts of material into something usable
0: yeah thank you i wanted to focus on the high level of strategy and also what military planners often call the operational level of war or the campaign level of war which is essentially what stitches together the various battles into some kind of a broader logic so military campaigns are you know generally best understood as a sequence of battles maneuvers and other operations over a period typically of months over a geographic extent typically of hundreds of miles plus or minus and that are designed to serve the broader interest of strategy so i really wanted to understand the major campaigns of the various key wars that i wrote about and to link them to strategic choices, sometimes good choices, sometimes bad choices, but to stay at that level of understanding why did one side win, why did one side lose, and how did this skirmish or this battle fit into a larger whole? And with, with that philosophy, which, which I learned partly from a very nice U.S. Marine Corps booklet about campaigning that was written back in the 1990s and did a beautiful job of understanding the last year of the Civil War, especially the Virginia campaign by General Meade and General Grant that ultimately led to Appomattox, I, I found that was a really helpful approach. Now, it's not guaranteed to to work in every instance, and I certainly <laughs> wrote the book in some trepidation of how historians who really knew the individual wars much better than I might react. And I'm sure I'll just someday have my critics if they get around to reading the book. But so far, I've been gratified that. Uh, historians, at least the ones I've talked to, seem to view me to some extent as a, uh, as a partner in crime, so to speak, as trying to help reinvigorate and emphasize the importance of history at a time when many academics, many strategists don't do that very much. So I'm, I'm hopeful I didn't make too many big mistakes by taking this approach, but that's what I tried to do
1: so in emphasizing kind of the applied nature of this you mentioned um you have some lessons that you've drawn from studying all these campaigns so the first one i want to ask about it, and, and it's a major theme across many of the wars you're writing about is kind of this theme of overconfidence expecting short or easy wars uh, we see it happen time and time again so i'll start by asking a little bit of a converse question why would this history of overconfidence and failure behind us why haven't we managed to breed some sense of, um, if not realism, then perhaps even pessimism into our policymakers and military planners by this point?
0: I think it's because the kind of people who go into policymaking and high level government service tend to be confident people. They also want to make a difference. Sometimes they're well motivated. Sometimes they're badly motivated. Sometimes it's a mix, but they tend to be doers and they tend to think therefore that the country they're representing, the military they're leading, the war plans they've concocted, the new technologies they may have developed and fielded in recent months or years, together create the potential for rapid victory and for decisive effect. It's a human nature kind of thing. That's why it's so important, even though it sounds obvious that people tend to be overconfident going into war. It's it's such human nature. That's what I think studying a number of wars reinforces because you see it time and again that I think we have to just recognize it's part of our nature, especially, again, people who want to take power and use it for good or for ill. And even the people who are wanting to use it for good can make this mistake of overconfidence because they can get lured into thinking, again, their country is special, their military is excellent their clever war plans have been beautifully developed you know even though as, uh, as as folks have said before war plans rarely survive contact with the enemy but nonetheless you can get drawn into the allure of some big new idea and so you know George W Bush and Donald Rumsfeld I think two to my mind two very decent human beings who wanted to do good things with american power Uh, thought that they could overthrow Saddam Hussein relatively easily. And that was just a big mistake. Vladimir Putin, a much less good guy, thought that he could overthrow Ukraine quickly and easily. And he made that same similar kind of mistake, believing in Russian martial superiority and, you know, Ukrainian inferiority and the brilliance of his technologies and his war plans and the sort of, you know, pusillanimous nature of the West that would quickly lose interest in the conflict. These are the mental attitudes that, in his case, led him to think he could overthrow President Zelensky quickly last year. So we just see it all the time. And again, it's not always the exact same mix of psychological factors, but it does seem to be pretty intrinsic to the human species. And therefore, it's worth remembering and thinking about, lest we make that mistake
1: again. And in this country in particular, uh, talk a little bit about the role of technology because you do draw on some of that, the revolution of military affairs, et cetera. Is technology a, a criminal accomplice to overconfidence in the United States?
0: It often is. Uh, it's not always the case. For example, if we look at the Civil War, I don't know that either side was really thinking, oh, I've, you know, I've got this now rifled musket that's going to mean that I can win the great you know, war between the states uh, easily and quickly. In that case, it was more just people couldn't quite wrap their heads around what war might look like and couldn't quite believe it was really going to happen and were focused primarily on achieving their goals without war, especially Lincoln. And so people didn't get very far into the planning and didn't really dwell on the technology. But then you had the next big war I look at, World War I, where the Germans in particular had spent decades building their railroad system and really, you know, going through the early stages of the industrial revolution and mass producing a lot of weaponry, figuring out how to mobilize large armies, going back to, you know, that was a trend that really began maybe a hundred years before with Napoleon and, you know, manifested itself in the European states of the early 20th century as they prepared for massive operations. And so it was the combination of, of this industrialized society, mass produced weapons, big conscript military forces, trains, the telegraph. These were the things that together, and certainly highlighting the technology in that case, that together produced the, the the overconfidence that led to the Schlieffen plan and everything else that tragically unfolded starting in 1914. So, you know, we can use different examples, but I, I think that it's it's not just the United States, it's uh, it's other countries as well. And Putin thought he had come up with this great military modernization plan in Russia. And he seemed to have this deep-seated belief that Russian greatness would produce excellent weaponry. And you know, historically, you can see why he would come to that conviction, because the Russians certainly have done amazing things over the centuries in mathematics and physics and many other realms of technology-related endeavor. So it's not just an American thing, but you're right. We are certainly prone to that ourselves. And sometimes it's been true. Technology really helped us win World War II, for example. Thank God we got the atomic bomb first. You know, thank God we figured out better ways to transit the Atlantic with supply ships uh, using new technology so that we wouldn't have most of our supply ships, you know, sunk on the way over by German U-boats, etc. But then technology gave us overconfidence in places like the uh, Vietnam War, where we thought the massive application of firepower using airplanes and other technologies that we controlled and dominated much more, of course, than the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese. We thought that would be a a key to success, and it wasn't. So uh, you're right. It does happen to us as well. But it happens to everybody, this, this allure of technology.
1: And in, in terms of using these lessons to, to kind of help guide the modern strategist or policymaker, as I read your book, I was struck by kind of the inconsistency with the way that the historiographical debate views kind of the military pessimists. For example, we excoriate, you know, George McClellan because he thought he was outnumbered and he blew his opportunity to potentially win the war in uh, 1862 during the Peninsula campaign. Uh, at the, other hand, we have uh, folks like Eric Shinseki in the lead up to Iraq, who, because they felt that more troops would be needed, now we kind of laud in the historiographical debate. So do, does the military history community need to perhaps emphasize more the naysayer, or the pessimist who got it right, or even better understand the ones who got it wrong, but took that position anyway?
0: Yeah, that's a nice question. I think that caution is always good, but of course, you don't want to get jacketed by caution if you're in a war that you maybe had no choice but to fight and you're going to need some cleverness to succeed. So it's a yin and yang of military planning that you always need to ask what could go wrong, but you always need to try to outthink the enemy and do something clever they don't expect if possible. You prefer not to just have every war look like World War II where just by dint of our advanced technology and larger size and our you know alliance with the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom, we eventually just overwhelm our enemies and pound them into attrition, submission and defeat. Uh, you, you'd rather be able to go out and win a war with maneuver, with clever strike, with, uh, you know, with high technology, even though I've just warned against thinking it's going to work all the time. Uh, but at the, at the same time, you do need the pessimist to always be doubting uh, or looking for holes in the plan. And thinking as a red team might of what the enemy could do to interfere with your grand concoction or beautiful concept for, you know, decisive and rapid victory. So I don't want to, I don't want to rule out, you know, the importance of cleverness, but I would like to have a Shinseki in every conversation for sure, as, as one thinks about future war planning. And I really want the Chinese and the Americans and their military establishments going forward to have a lot of Shinseki's around because both of these countries should be extremely nervous about ever fighting the other. I mean, leave aside just the sheer size of both and leave aside the nuclear weapons, although I don't mean to poo-poo that, but, but both sides have deep strategic reserves of capability, technology, people, and neither one is going to allow itself to be easily defeated if we ever fight. So I would want to have the, the naysayers, the skeptics, the doubters, uh, even more prominently placed in, uh, you know, war planning and policymaking circles.
1: So Another theme you focus on at the end of the book, and one that I found quite interesting, I hadn't necessarily thought about in these terms is, quote, America's grand strategy is strong enough to absorb some setbacks. And as you point out, the American military, by most measures, has a losing record since World War II. But it seems in many ways that the whole does exceed the sum of the parts. So my first question on this is in terms of just straightforward efficacy for America's grand strategy. Does the military in some place represent a uh, secondary element of American power? Yes,
0: although crucial. And I I think of the military as providing the stability needed to let the other instruments of our society and our economy and our government succeed and gradually trying to keep the world stable enough and safe enough. that. Those who build things, those who uh, create, those who invent can produce the kind of prosperity and interconnectedness that we all value. And the military itself is a pretty mediocre instrument of trying to go out and advance democracy or human rights, as we've all been reminded with the Iraq and Afghanistan experiences this century. And so you don't really want to be thinking of it as your active tool for making the world better so much as... Uh, the instrument for keeping what we've got that's good already as a solid foundation from which to build further using non-military tools. Uh, And, you know, Jim Mattis, when he was secretary of defense, used to talk about how he wanted to have a really strong military to help the secretary of state do his job better. You know, in other words, to enable and empower diplomacy. And I like that formulation, even coming out of so-called Mad Dog Mattis, although he prefers the nickname chaos uh, over Mad Dog. But, uh, you know, that someone as war tested as as, uh, Secretary Mattis could put things in those terms was to me a good reminder that the military is there to try to keep things from going south more than it is to be the active uh, instrument of progress.
1: And from the strategic perspective, as you point out, if we kind of accept the idea that the grant strategy does perhaps outpace or survive military setbacks, should that make us more permissive of, of things that look like perhaps military failures or quagmires from an operational perspective? And I'm thinking particularly about Afghanistan, uh, for example. You you mentioned in the book, you know, perhaps keeping a small footprint there indefinitely might have been... Uh, efficacious from a strategic standpoint? Again, from the operational standpoint, uh, no one likes to muddle along. I was there in 2019. It wasn't uh, necessarily the most enlightening mission at the time. But is there a role for these kind of um, indefinite operations if you look at the way that they support an overall grand strategy?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to your question at different levels. And I'll come back to the Afghanistan part in a second. But I think that You know, it is true that since 1945, the United States has, by my count, waged four major wars, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Some people would want to divide the Iraq War into two, but I think of it as a 30-year experience starting with Desert Storm and really continuing until today and thereafter. But out of those four, we have had zero clean wins, and we've had two outright defeats, Vietnam and Afghanistan. And I, I define defeat as you know, the government we were trying to support ultimately fell. So it's pretty hard to sugarcoat the outcome. In Korea and in Iraq, you could say we got sort of a stalemate in the first and it's too soon to say what we've got in the second. So, you know, using sports uh, win-loss tie, I consider us to be zero, two and two in major wars since 1945. And yet no great power has ever had a more successful period of expanding its influence, protecting the security of the international environment, maintaining alliances, avoiding great power war, you know, sort of allowing prosperity to spread and democracy as well. It's really been, despite all the troubles, including of modern times, it's really been a remarkable three fourths of a century since the end of World War II. And our military power has done a lot, I think, to sustain that period of relative peace even in the face of these setbacks, for which I don't generally blame the military, by the way, the, the wars that we fought, the way that we fought them, were more often than not the choices of civilian leadership, of course, and, and of our political system, as opposed to men and women in uniform. I do fault the military fairly strongly for the Vietnam War. I don't think that was well waged. But otherwise, I think our mediocre record is primarily due to the nature of these conflicts and the higher level decisions about how and where and if to fight them but it still is again to simplify to summarize it really is quite striking that we've had this period where democracy has spread prosperity has spread great powers have generally not fought each other thank god and yet throughout that period our military record as the world's number one superpower has been very mediocre
1: and the last of the three major themes you identify in the conclusion is the idea that uh, nothing is preordained, no outcome is preordained. And fascinatingly, you you frame this both not just in terms of pessimism, i.e. a, a war that takes longer or is bloodier than expected, but also those conflicts that are much quicker and, uh, quote unquote, cleaner than expected. And indeed, we've had some of those the past few decades. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the latter of those two? Yeah,
0: uh, you're right that War is always uh, difficult to forecast. Like Yogi Berra said, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And any time human beings are competing with each other, whether it's in something as simple and inconsequential as sports or whether it's in matters of war and peace, you have that potential for the unexpected and for the human will factor also to manifest itself. And that can lead to very long protracted wars, but it can also lead... To quick outcomes sometimes which again goes back to your very opening question why do people sometimes start wars with this overconfidence well it's because maybe one out of every three or four times they're right <laughs> the what happens you know justifies and legitimates their confidence and they win fast at least in their initial battles at least in their early conquests you know so obviously some people run out of luck over time when they expand their ambitions or you know, try to go wage war somewhere else. But one way to do this is to come back to your earlier question, which I never really answered about Afghanistan. And to say, when we started the campaign against the Taliban in October of 2001, after president Bush, I think did a, a great job since I was critical of him before, let me say, I think he did a very good job in rallying the country after nine 11. And uh, luckily for all of us, we had some pretty creative, Uh, CIA and special forces personnel who had contacts in Afghanistan and were able to go over and sort of help develop a concept of operations that we didn't really have a war plan for. We hadn't really done war planning either in the previous Clinton administration or the early months of the Bush administration. There was no on the shelf war plan for Afghanistan, but people improvised. And lo and behold, within two months, we had overthrown the Taliban, working with the Afghan Northern Alliance, which provided, you know, crucially so many of the foot soldiers. And and we, we embedded with them, called in air power. Uh, Professor Steve Biddle at Columbia University has done a lot of great work explaining this dynamic and others have too. And so that was a much more rapid victory in a campaign where we didn't even really quite know what we were going to do because the Taliban didn't have the usual infrastructure for us to bomb, which is often... The modern American preference on how to wage war. Uh, and, you know, we've gotten better at it, uh, for example, in the Kosovo War, which I don't really write about in this book. Uh, I did write a history with Evo Dalder of the Kosovo War, but that was a smaller scale operation. But we learned in that operation how to use air power more selectively, uh, more carefully, less lethally, and yet still create effects that would lead an enemy to reconsider. And that was not really going to be applicable in the same way in Afghanistan, given the dearth of infrastructure or economic assets. So we had to improvise, but it worked. And two months later, we had overthrown the Taliban. Unfortunately, 20 years later, we still hadn't found a way to stabilize its replacement. Uh, but we you know, did have very rapid success in our initial goal. And some people think that's all we should have done. We should have just pulled back after overthrowing the Taliban. and and let the Afghans sort it out. Uh, Unfortunately, we had sort of tried that strategy once before after the Mujahideen defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan in the late 1980s. And the chaos that resulted is exactly what produced the Taliban. So I I never favored that strategy myself. But but I do think by the year 2021, uh, we had settled on a basic approach to the Afghan conflict that allowed us to help the Afghan government more or less hold on to the cities with only 5000 or so American troops on the ground and and I would have preferred to keep going at that strategy for a while longer to see if a peace process could really be seriously attempted a compromise power sharing of some kind worked out you know I don't know what the prospects would have been but but I do think in comparison to the risks of having a Taliban run Afghanistan Um, you know, in comparison to the human suffering we're seeing in Afghanistan today, since the Taliban don't know how to run a modern country and half the country, half the population is now suffering from privation. I would have preferred to try to uh, keep on with this imperfect mission at a much lower scale than we had previously found necessary, you know, 95% reduction in troops from the peak. Uh, That 5,000 strong U.S. force would have been a tiny fraction of our overall military, way less than one percent. And so uh, I thought it was the right strategy to keep going with that. But obviously, President Trump and President Biden disagree.
1: I'll take this opportunity to plug for the listeners. I think uh, your chapter on America's wars in the Middle East is a fantastic kind of case study and how to write history about events that are more contemporary. Uh, let alone that one you, in which you were a public figure. So uh, kudos to you for that. Um, I'll ask kind of a wild card question here because as I, I read your themes and conclusions in this book, I couldn't help thinking of a case study uh, that wasn't in here, but that involved you know, American commander who very much understood the relationship between ends and means, who knew when to lose a battle to win a war, knew when to run away, and definitely avoided overconfidence. And I'm referring here to uh, George Washington and the American military experience during the Revolutionary War. So, A, I'm curious what you think of this characterization. And B, is somewhere buried in the kind of folds of the military superpower, is there a strategic tradition of of Washingtonianism that we can draw upon to kind of remember what it was like to be um, the little guy again?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Nice question.
1: Well, first of all, I'm glad you called attention to the American Revolution.
0: And I'm now working on the prologue to the paperback version of my book, which is going to come out next year. And I'm I'm going to have the prologue deal with the American Revolution because that is, and then maybe link it to the Ukraine war, which of course will be a year further along than it had been when i published the initial hardcover copy so somehow you know straddle those 250 years with the endpoints being or bookends being the american revolution and the current war in ukraine Uh, and i find the revolutionary war fascinating i'm trying to learn more about it than i've known before again i'm going to take the same approach of focusing on the campaign level of analysis and in other words how do you imagine stitching a bunch of battles together in service of a broader strategy and just to give two examples washington did not get off to a very good start with that approach with the battle for new york in 1776 but he did much better uh, in the new jersey and then ultimately the you know uh trenton campaigns of late 1776 into early 1777 and realized that by trading territory Uh, but occasionally going on the tactical offensive and, you know, avoiding big battles most of the time, but being able to fight when he did have local advantage that he could really make the British job almost impossible, you know, of trying to subdue the colonies with a fairly modest force in this enormous geography that the British were trying to control. And in a war where it wasn't so obvious how you actually win if you're the British, because, you know, taking New York, which they had by that point done, didn't win it for them. Uh, it just gave them one prize and it didn't allow them to control the rest of the countryside. Later, they, you know, took Philadelphia, but by then the Continental Congress had already relocated. So, you know, what great good does it do you to take one of these cities? And, uh, and so Washington started to feel his way towards the kind of a strategy and therefore taking it one level lower, the kind of a prolonged campaign, a series of battles over an extensive geographic scale and scope that would serve his broader interests and keep the British on their heels. And then, of course, after that all happened, uh, there was a a, a sort of a, you know, big win for the uh, rebels in uh, New York State up around uh, Saratoga. And then the French entered, which was perhaps, you know, even more important than we often give our friends the French credit for in determining the ultimate outcome of the war. So campaign level analysis really turns out to help you understand the American Revolution, too. You know, you can think of a few other campaigns I won't get into now. I'm still learning about that one. Uh, So anybody who, uh, you know, wants to buy my book now, please do so. Anybody who wants to wait for the paperback version early next year, uh, you'll be able to learn about the revolution there as well.
1: I look forward to reading that introduction and my last question for you. So you definitely framed writing this as an exercise in learning. So I'm curious if you think about maybe prevailing military history narratives that dominate either popular perceptions or even among policymakers, um, can you think of something you learned in the course of writing this that surprised you or caused you to revise an opinion on one of these wars?
0: Yeah, I always going back to the three lessons, you know, that outcomes are not preordained, that war is usually harder and longer and bloodier than expected. And that the United States has uh, had a generally successful overall grand strategy since 1945, even while it loses or stalemates most of its actual big wars. Out of those three, you know, I probably could have, none of them are, you know, as as revelatory as Einstein's theory of relativity or something. And I probably could I probably sort of could have predicted that that I would come up with something like at least two of them. But the ability of war to take turns and twists and for outcomes, therefore not to be foreseeable, that really struck me uh, as something I hadn't thought enough about, because I always sort of thought, well, you know, the North was probably going to win the Civil War, given its advantages and industry and size and, You know, I always thought, well, of course, we the good guys had to win World War Two because, you know, we were fighting evil and how could evil have prevailed and so on and so forth. But in the Civil War, for example, I think as late as the summer of 1864, before um, Sherman had taken Atlanta, there's a good chance that now retired General McClellan running against Lincoln in the presidential campaign that would be decided in November of that year that he would have won the election based on the Northern population's frustration with the war, fatigue with the war, unwillingness to keep sacrificing and losing so many people. And even though polling wasn't quite what it was back in that day compared to now, uh, there was good reason to think McClellan could win that election until the fall of Atlanta, which I think was September 1st of 1864, more or less. And, uh, And so it's hard to imagine, but I think the Civil War could have had the other result of leading to the permanent secession of the southern states and division of the country i also think that if hitler had managed either to subdue britain in you know in the battle of britain after defeating france in 1940 or if uh he had managed to defeat the soviet union in the campaign of summer and fall of 1941 which he almost did that it's not so clear what happens next in world war ii it's hard for me to believe that hitler with all of his pathologies and all of his you know psychopathic tendencies could have really started a thousand year reich the way he wanted to but uh, i don't know how we would have easily uh defeated him coming from the north american continent i don't know maybe he would have had time and resources to get further along in his nuclear weapons campaign if he had not been getting pummeled from the air and fighting on both sides of his country, uh, in the in the you know following years, maybe uh, I mean I hate to think Hitler getting the atomic bomb before we had it, but you know I don't think World War II had to play out the way it did either, and so I am struck by this reality. My colleague Bob Kagan, who's a brilliant historian, and just published his book "Ghost at the Feast" about the U.S. from 1900 to 1941. He said very pithily, he said, we learn history looking backward, but history is made moving forward. And it's very easy to forget that (laughs) when you look back at history, because we all learn it once it's over by definition. And so it just tends to feel like something that played out a certain way because it more or less had to. But it really didn't. And we don't know how to control or predict outcomes in war.
1: And that sounds like a nice sobering point to end on. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation, Mike, and thanks very much for being here today.
0: Sam, thank you very much. I enjoyed it myself. Appreciate the uh, interest in the book and obviously the interest in the subject matter, which we both share. And I I hope others uh, will be able to indulge their interest and find it useful uh, if they pick up this
1: book. The book is Military History for the Modern Strategist. The author is Michael O'Hanlon for New Books Network. This is Sam Cantor. Thank you for joining, and we'll see you next time.